0: To love one another just like He loves us. What makes that command new is the manner in which we are to love each other. He didn't say like the Old Testament said, love your neighbor as yourself. Love others like you love yourself. No, no, no. He carried it to a supernatural level. He said, I want you to love other people just like I've loved you. That's supernatural. That's not human in the sense that it's humanly possible. Did you know that? It's not. See, God's love so far supersedes our natural human love. And so Jesus made it clear I'm going to leave you here on this earth, and I want you to love each other just like I've loved you." Now, whether we understand it or not, and all the particular details, that's our job. That is what God has created us to do. A lot of people worry about what their ministry is, worry about what they're supposed to do. Worry about whether they ought to fly a plane over the church on Sunday. That's my neighbor over there and I've got to love him. He's right? got an airstrip over there so every Sunday morning I can pretty well count on the fact that he's going to take off with that plane. I'm not going to mention any names to embarrass him or anything. but. That's part of having church in the woods. Did you know that? Little baby squirrels dancing around on the stage, that's also part of church in the woods. Black snakes running from the back all the way up here, that's also part of the church in the woods. Little baby armadillos running around on that stump right there, that's also part of the church in the woods. We're kind of unique in that that way, but regardless, we have one mission one calling of god and that's to love each other just like jesus loves us that's amazing isn't it first of all it's amazing because it's possible for us to do that you see he wouldn't have given us that new command if it wasn't possible now no particularly who gave who gave that who he gave that command to a handful of misfits called disciples that He chose. He said, I want you to go love each other. And guess what they've been doing for a week at least before He told them that? They had been fighting with each other, arguing about which one of them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They were arguing about it. I can just hear him now. I can hear Peter say, Listen, boys, I'm going to be the greatest. There's no question about it. Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. That's got to mean me. That means I've got to be the greatest. James and John argued with him. I can just hear him say to him, You can't be the greatest because right after that, Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan, for you don't understand the things of the kingdom. No way you can be the greatest. We had our mama go to him and ask if one of us could sit on his right hand and the other sit on his left hand. Undoubtedly, we're going to be the greatest. They were arguing. They weren't loving each other. They were fighting with each other about which one was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. That's why Jesus that night had to get their attention by laying aside his outer garments, getting a basin of water, and going individually to each disciple, kneeling down and washing their dirty feet. You want to be the greatest in the kingdom? This is what it's going to take. Serving others in love. Loving one another. Just like Jesus did. And it's in that very context in John chapter 13 that He said, A new command I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Now, I know I've gone off on a little bit of a tangent here, and I'm going to get back to our studies in Hebrews in a minute. But I want you to see the context of what Hebrews is talking about. I want you to see the context of your life in this world with a command from your Savior and your King to love other people like He does. And I want you to realize, first of all, that ain't easy. That's tough. It's really hard to keep on loving even people you like. Never mind people you don't like. It's difficult. And it is so difficult to fulfill that command that Jesus gave us one thing that would allow us to do that. He gave us His Spirit living inside of us. He called Him on that night, He called Him the Comforter because it's His job to comfort us by teaching us, guiding us into all truth, reminding us He comforts us so that we might be able to comfort others. So that we might be able to love others. Now what I'm describing for you is a lifestyle that I call a lifestyle of grace and truth. It's the same kind of lifestyle that Jesus lived while he was here on earth. See, John tells us about that in contrast in his very first chapter of his gospel he said, now the law, the rules and regulations came by Moses. What you ought to do, what you ought to not do, that all came by Moses. But grace and truth came by Jesus. Why the contrast there? Because the law has only one purpose. And that is to prove that you are an absolute, dysfunctional, self-centered clot of grievances and ailments. That's what the law proves. It proves that you are sinful. The law can prove that. If I wanted to prove to you today that you are sinful, all I would need to do is start reading the commands of the Scripture. Let me give you my favorite one. It gets right down to the point. Philippians 2.14 Do all things without murmuring and disputing. What does that mean? It means live your life without ever complaining, bitching or moaning about anything. How many of you kept that one? Huh? Just proved you were guilty. And in need of a Savior. See, Jesus came not to give us a list of rules and regulations to prove how sinful we are, how dysfunctional we are. He came to show us the grace of God in doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. So this lifestyle that we've been talking about, a lifestyle of grace and truth, is a lifestyle that Jesus lived while he was here on this earth and a lifestyle that each one of us are called to because the ultimate goal of that lifestyle of grace and truth is to fulfill that new commandment of loving one another just like he loved us as Paul told the Roman church when you love like he does you fulfill the whole law It's all fulfilled in this one concept, loving other people like He does. And He's given you the ability to do that, to live that lifestyle of grace and truth. Now, I have no doubt that most of you, if not all of you, have experienced that lifestyle to some degree by believing in Jesus, receiving His Spirit, having Him renew your mind, to one degree or another, you've experienced what it means to live a lifestyle of grace and truth. But I also know that you're like me, and you have a heck of a time maintaining that lifestyle. You see... There are many obstacles, many difficulties. And so our author here in Hebrews chapter 12 is describing for for us what it's going to take to be able to live that lifestyle of grace and truth consistently day in and day out. And he tells us right here in this chapter, chapter 12 of Hebrews, He tells us point blank that it's going to take God disciplining us, God training us. That's what is referred to here as God's chastening. Now you all know the metaphor that he's using here of a marathon race. He's describing you living a lifestyle of grace and truth till the end of your life. The finish line is in heaven when you're finally glorified there, he compares that to a marathon race. Not a quick dash, not a 100-yard dash, but a marathon, on and on and on. In order to run a marathon race, you have to have endurance. And that endurance is necessary for you to cross the finish line. That's why our author is using that metaphor here to describe this. He says, you are running a marathon race that is set before you. What is that marathon race? Living a lifestyle of grace and truth, living in grace, by the grace of God, according to the truth, by your faith, which produces in you hope or endurance, which allows you to actually love one another, even as Christ loved us. You all follow the sequence there? It's important that you see this. So the way we get into this lifestyle of grace is by faith. Faith in what? Faith in everything God says He's done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. And there's a whole bunch of it written down in black and white right here most important thing, the most critical thing that we are to trust in is who God said He made you to be. Now, this is not easy. Everybody says, well, you live by faith. You know, that's too easy. No, 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 no. To trust in who God said He made you to be defies all the world's wisdom. It defies all the evidence surrounding you in your life. Did you know that? Yeah? Because according to the Word of God, He crucified that old person you always thought you were, buried Him once and for all, and raised up a brand new person created in Christ Jesus. You're no longer the same person you've always thought of yourself as being. That's not you. That person you thought you were all these years, that person you thought you were is dead, crucified with Christ, buried with Him. And a brand new person has been raised up and quickened or made alive together in Christ. So you're a brand new person who is, by the way, just like Jesus. Think that's hard to believe? We bet it's hard to believe. So like Paul told Romans in Romans chapter 6, he said, I want you to count on the fact. I want you to count on this fact. That you are dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. You know what that means? You do not sin. Hard to believe? You bet it's hard to believe. When is it hard to believe? Right after your flesh flashes and does that stupid thing you thought you'd never do again. Then the question comes, am I that old person? Or am I the new person God said he made me to be? See, this is a daily battle. The battle of faith. What the Bible describes, fighting the fight, the good fight of faith. Believing what? Believing who God said he made you to be. Now, why is that so important? To believe who you are. Who God said he made you to be. Because... What you think about yourself is going to determine your feelings. And your feelings are going to determine your actions and your behavior. Unless your mind is renewed. Unless your thinking is changed. You're not going to Feel or act like Christ. It's gotta start right here. That's why Paul admonished the church at Philippi. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? Think like Jesus. What's the first thing Jesus Paul describes Jesus thinking about who Jesus being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Jesus knew who he was. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see without that essential element of faith, in who God said He made you to be, you have no hope. because that's where hope comes from. It comes from you believing what God says is true. And the Spirit then produces hope in you, like Paul prayed for in Romans 15:13. He said, "Now the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing through the power of the Holy Spirit. How are you going to receive that joy and peace and hope? In believing. Believing what? Believing who God said He made you to be. Despite the evidence to the contrary. God said it right here in His Word. You're a brand new person in Christ. The question is, are you going to believe it or not? Believing it gives you hope, a joyful, confident expectation about your future. You know you're going to be okay. You realize that nothing is going to hurt you, destroy you, end you. You're going to be okay in the future. And that hope, that joyful expectation and confidence about your future frees you up from that natural bondage of self-centeredness to actually begin to care about others around you to be able to love them like Christ you see unless we receive that love from God by faith and experience it in hope we can't share it with anybody else And so this lifestyle of grace and truth we're walking in is a marathon. Yeah, we're running this marathon race. And there are many obstacles that keep us from believing that. There are many obstacles that keep us from running. Not the least of which is what our author here introduces to us and we've been studying for a number of weeks now as suffering. See, the Apostle Paul, which I tend to believe he wrote this letter to the Hebrews. But his, in his letter to the Romans, he identified the one thing that will knock us off course quicker than anything else. The one thing that will cause us to quit believing who God said he made us to be more than anything else. You know what that is? Personal suffering. When bad stuff happens to you. Yeah. Personal suffering. When things don't go your way. When people hurt you. Suffering either from a physical form or a personal or relational form. When that suffering comes, your mind naturally goes away from the gospel, from believing who God said you made, he made you to be. Naturally. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to make it happen. You don't have to consider that. It just naturally happens. When bad stuff happens to you, you no longer believe that you are secure in God's love and significant in His plan. Your mind turns away from everything that God has said He's done to make you worthy as a person, secure and significant. Everything God said He made you to be just like Jesus, your mind turns away from that. You know where it turns to? It turns to how you are going to develop a plan to save your own butt? That's what it turns to. Immediately. When some bad thing happens to you, immediately you start thinking, okay, how am I going to get out of this? What am I going to do to change this? How am I going to fix this? Your mind doesn't naturally go to faith in what God has done for you and is doing for you it naturally reverts back to the law it reverts back to what am I going to do to save myself when that happens you fall from grace back under the law when that happens You're no longer running the race of grace and truth. You're falling into the trap of legalism and lies. Many people respond with, What did I do, God? How come you let this happen to me? So we blame God. Other people say, Oh man, I screwed up. God, I must have done something really bad or God wouldn't have let this happen to me and we condemn ourselves. Neither one is appropriate, folks. When you face suffering, you've got to know that that's part of God's love for you. He allows you to experience that suffering just like he allowed his son Jesus to experience suffering for a positive purpose. To train you. Our author here calls it chastening. And we look at chastening and we see the pain involved in chastening. We say, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to figure out what I need to do to avoid that. You can't. There's no way in this, there's nowhere in this world you can go where you won't suffer at some point. Nowhere. The whole creation groans and travails together in pain until now. The whole creation, there's nowhere to go. And there's no particular strategy or scheme you're going to develop to avoid suffering. So what our author is talking about here is God's grace. Number one, He will not allow you to face any suffering that He knows will defeat you. But with that suffering gives you the grace to endure it and come out on top. That's a guarantee. God's not going to let you suffer so you lose. Oh no. And number two, in the middle of that suffering, the Spirit is making intercession for you with groanings which cannot be uttered according to the will of God, to shape and mold you according to God's plan and purpose for your life. I call it ministry training. Training you to be able to fulfill your ministry of loving others like Christ. And number three, that suffering that you endure is not worthy to be compared to the rejoicing and the glory which will be revealed in you. So don't freak about suffering. See, we hurt ourselves more by freaking about suffering or trying to avoid suffering than we do by accepting it as a chastening of God, as His discipline, preparing us. All that being said, I'm gonna get down to the verses I was going to explain to you today, but I didn't have time. I'll just read them to you. Okay. Hebrews chapter twelve, starting in verse twelve, he says, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees. I can be I can really relate to those feeble knees, can't you? lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Obviously, I'm not going to be able to explain these verses in depth to you what he's saying right here, in a nutshell, is get on with your lifestyle of grace and truth. Shake off the suffering. Get on with it. I entitled this message that I'm not going to be able to share with you today fully. I entitled it according to a military term, that they teach military folks. I entitled it, Adapt, Improvise, and Overcome. That's what you're called to do. Adapt to that suffering. Improvise through faith and overcome by the grace of God. We'll learn more about that next week, Lord willing. But for right now, I'd like for the men who are going to serve communion to us, go prepare that and we're going to close our service today with the Lord's Supper and I want to make this connection between what we're studying here in Hebrews about the chastening of God about his training his loving discipline do you realize that Jesus was chastened by God did you know that yeah he was You see, when he was born into this world, in this sin-cursed world we live in, he was born into all kinds of trouble. I mean, he wasn't even born yet, and Satan was trying to kill him. And right after he was born, that puppet king Herod was trying to kill him. He grew up with his life being threatened. When he started his public ministry, remember? He was baptized at the Jordan River. And the Spirit led him, just like the Spirit leads us, into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted 40 days and 40 nights. That's suffering. You go out back here 40 days and 40 nights without any food. You'll feel what Jesus felt in his suffering. God allowed all that to happen to Jesus. Did you know that? But that wasn't the worst. The worst actually occurred on the night before he was crucified. When he asked his disciples to pray for him. And he went away a little further from them. And he literally submitted himself to a shockwave of grief and astonishment. What was that? Isaiah tells us what that was all about. He says, he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now think of it this way. Think of all the things you've suffered in your life or ever will suffer in your life. All the suffering you've been called on to endure. Now multiply that times every person that ever has lived or ever will live. That's what Jesus submitted Himself to in the garden. It knocked Him to His knees. He fell on His face and He began to bleed through His sweat glands. Drops of blood. That's how intense that suffering was. Why did God allow that? I thought Jesus did everything right. Yeah, he did. But that's not what suffering, not what chastening is about. God allowed his own son to suffer. So, in a sense, God has chastened his own son to prepare him for the greatest task humanity has ever seen and that is to sacrifice himself on the cross to create a brand new human race. Yeah, Jesus suffered. And we, because we are his disciples, because we believe on him as Paul told the Philippians, It is given to us not only to believe on His name, His identity, but also to suffer for His sake. So every bit of suffering you do in this world is for the sake of Jesus. What has God done for us? Jesus... Revealed to us the grace of God on that night before he was crucified By this memorial meal we are about to receive It's a symbolic meal And it's symbolic of our union with Christ Not only in his glory, but in his sufferings as well. It's a symbolic meal of the new covenant of grace that Jesus instituted so that we could live this lifestyle of grace and truth. On that night, he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for the remission of sins of many. What do you mean by that? He said, right now, I'm going to Ratify that new covenant right now i'm making a new deal with humanity it's no longer up to your performance it's no longer up to what you do or don't do god says i'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourself the only question is whether you'll believe it or not it's a done deal the blood of the new covenant which is shed for the remission of sins. You want to know how to get rid of sin? Believe in the sacrifice of the new covenant. That same night, took the bread, would be broken. He said, "This is my body, which is being broken for you." Now, he's not just talking about the physical body that hung on the cross. He's talking about the spiritual body, the body of Christ, which is being built up right now throughout all human history. That body of which you are all members one of another. It gives you the basis on which you love one another. By instituting this memorial meal, Jesus gives us a picture of what grace is all about. God takes care of your dysfunction and your sin by his sacrifice, and He unites you with the body of Christ so that you can function even as Christ functioned on this earth. Let's bless these elements and pray. Father God, as we come into your presence, we thank you. We thank you for the blood and body of our Savior. We thank you for the sacrifice that instituted that new covenant of grace. We thank you for the potential we have to walk in grace and truth. And we ask you, blessed name, according to your plan and your purpose. For these things we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Would you come and receive the elements, please? Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website, All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes.